Let's try together to prepare our life for our Lord's coming at His Holy Christmas. The topic we chose a few months ago is Franciscan, and uh, <clears throat> it is Marian at the same time. My effort is to try to show the importance of St. Francis' mission at his time, which is basically a mission very relevant for this time in which we live. And I try now to show some links between St. Francis' time and situation in the society, in the church, and this time, the difficult situation we face in our culture today, in the church today. I think St. Francis is the way forward for this time. And uh, I might be a bit biased, but I'm a Franciscan, but I don't want to be so. But uh, trying to show you some, some uh, ideas, and you, you ponder them and you see whether that is feasible. Okay, let's start with the first topic. Let's start with that moment in St. Francis' life, 1208. Great historical moment during Middle Ages. St. Francis was already journeying with our Lord. He had already heard the call, Francis, what is more important for you? to serve the Lord or to serve the Master. Francis had a great interest in becoming a prominent man in the society of that time to have a great career. He was already a rich merchant, but he was not a nobleman. He wanted to ascend to a higher uh, social level in his time, and uh, he wanted to become a nobleman. In order to be a nobleman, he had to be a knight, to become a knight first. And to be a knight, he had to fight, <laughs> to go uh, and to fight and to win, in order to be worthy of that title. St. Francis is, is on this way uh, towards Puglia, the south of Italy, uh, in order to gain that title in a battle. But right on the journey, on, that, on his way, to that place, St. Francis heard the voice of our Lord. Francis, what is important? What is more important to serve the Lord, or the to serve the Master, or the servant? Of course, the Master. And why are you trying to serve the servant? Why are you becoming yourself a servant? St. Francis understood that Christ was telling him, to start a new life, <clears throat> no longer deceived by these uh, human aspirations to become a great but human uh, person only, but to do something else. Francis, the voice said, Francis, go back to Assisi, and then you will be told what to do. And that's it. St. Francis went back. He was an already a new person, starting his journey back to be another person, no longer 
uh, running after th that success, that career, that interest in money, in becoming famous, but being a man of Christ, to belong totally, exclusively to Christ. But Francis doesn't know what to do. He thought to be a monk, possibly. He had an experience with the Benedictines, and uh, he started to wear a very poor uh, habit, just as uh, sackcloth, uh, to be uh, like a hermit with a cincture, And he asked the monk, the, the, the Benedictine monks, to be uh, with them for some time to, to understand what to do. So the will of God was not uh, clear yet in his life. This is when now the voice of the crucifix of St. Damien spoke. This is now 1208, St. Francis' life, a very central moment, turning point, if you want, in his life, the beginning of his uh, more uh, intentional mission at the service of Christ. Francis was in St. Damien, in Assisi, praying before the crucifix. As he was praying, the crucifix spoke. He heard the voice, and the, the voice of Christ said, Go, Francis, and repair my house, or if you want, my church, the house in the sense of church. Because, as you see, it is falling apart. This is the only message he got at that time. Francis, go and repair my house. Hmm, what does it mean? So Francis was a very practical man. He was used to sell uh, very good fabrics. He was uh, in, in that business. So he thought, our Lord is asking me to do something with my money to refurbish some churches in Assisi. They are decadent. <laughs> They are falling apart. So I should invest my money into that uh, enterprise to do something good for the physical Uh, buildings. And that's why St. Francis started to, uh, he went to sell his horse to get some more money in order to help first a priest in Assisi. The first church he went to to be refurbished with his money, he thought was St. Damien in Assisi. And uh, He brought some money to the priest and said, I want to help you refurbishing this uh, church. But when the father knew that he was taking his money for that thing, he was very upset, put him in prison, and he was locked up for some time before the mother interceded for him to let him free. The mother was already aware of something going on in St. Francis' life. Don't forget that the mother of St. Francis, uh, Monna Pica, had a very special intuition at uh, Francis' birth. She was inspired to go down into the stall where the animals were kept to give birth to Francis as our Blessed Mother gave birth to Jesus in a very poor 
condition among animals. So that inspiration was very powerful. St. Francis was identified with Jesus since the very beginning of his life. He was born as Jesus was in Bethlehem, in a poor, uh, humble, uh, they had a very rich house in Assisi. But down, downstairs, where in the basement where they used to have the animals, St. Francis came to light. <clears throat> so the mother had already uh, that inspiration and she uh, sensed that something special was going on. So she interceded for Francis to let him free. And uh, we could also say that that role of Francis' mother in his life was very important for him to understand even more the role of our Blessed Mother in our own spiritual life, the mediation of Our Lady. Uh, this is my reflection. Uh, but I think that experience, uh, the presence of his mother was also very important. So Francis was uh, now uh, uh, ready uh, to give back to his father anything he had. You remember the episode, uh, public episode, when St. Francis, before the Bishop of Assisi, gave all his clothes back to his father. You are my father, Pietro di Bernardone. I give you everything back so that I can on, now can say, our father who art in heaven. That, is, that was a very moving moment for the bishop, for the father, for anyone. He was free to serve the Lord and uh, to be totally at his service. But the mission wasn't clear yet. Uh, he still thought that he had to help some churches in Assisi. From St. Damien, he moved on to another church, the second church. And that second church is St. Peter's, which is no longer in Assisi now. He started to do the same, to give some money to the priest and to help <laughs> with the refurbishing, with the building. And then finally he came to the third church. The third church is the most important one. That will be the hallmark of St. Francis' spirituality, we could say, very central in his life. That is the Portiuncula, St. Mary of the Angels in Assisi. Have you been to Assisi? Yes? Have you been to this church? Good. That is the heart of the Franciscan life. The heart of St. Francis' Uh, journey and mission. What happened? That church was very unique. Uh, the property was of the Benedictines, and still today the property is not of the Franciscans. It belongs to the Benedictines. St. Francis had a great love for Our Lady. As all biographers say, Thomas from Celano, and uh, St. Bonaventure, I take my reflection especially and uh, some inspiration from St. Bonaventure's life uh, on St. Francis, life of St. Francis, which is the major legend. 
St. Bonaventure is St. Francis' theologian. Francis was, was not a theologian, systematic theologian, if you want, as we understand it today, but was greater than any theologian, of course. He was a mystic. He was a great saint. He had an intuition. But that into mystical intuition was translated into theology, if you want, systematic theology, by St. Bonaventure, doctor of the church. What happened at the Porziuncula? Well, uh, that was a little portion. Porziuncula means little portion. A portion of heaven, if you want. Why? Because that church is still now consecrated to St. Mary of the Angels, a lady of the angels. So it was a heavenly place on earth for St. Francis. And since he was so devoted to Our Lady, he found in that place a special presence of the Mother of God, the Mother uh, of Christ. <clears throat> and uh, as he was starting to also refurbish that third church, he had an intuition, an inspiration. Uh, in that church, he was inspired with the right understanding of the mission uh, entrusted to him by the crucifix of St. Damien. The crucifix was not saying, Francis, you need to, to repair the buildings. Your mission, Francis, is to refurbish, to repair the church as the mystical body of Christ. And in that church, by the inspiration, the presence, the mediation of the Blessed Virgin Mary, he understood the very meaning of the words of the crucifix at St. Damien. The meaning was that Francis had to generate with his life a new spirit of poverty. He had to to give birth to the gospel of Christ in order to build up the mystical body of Christ, which was falling apart. St. Bonaventure, in his major legend, gives us the right theological understanding of that experience, which is very significant. St. Bonaventure writing about St. Francis' life and that experience says thus, The principal intent of the message he received at St. Damien, Go, Francis, repair my church, my house, had regard unto that church which Christ had purchased with his own blood, even as the Holy Spirit taught him. That was the church to build up. That was the church to repair. The church that Christ had purchased with his precious blood. So Francis was called by Christ to uh, work for the mystical body of Christ. Afflicted at that time, as it is throughout history, all the times, by heresies, by problems, by challenges from the culture, 
from the world. Saint Francis, with his very uh, uh, humility and poverty, had to respond to a great challenge to the gospel in that time. What happened in the society of that time and in the church when Saint Francis was alive? What was the main issue at the stake. Well, if we look at the main problems uh, from a theological, doctrinal point of view, we see that the main, the main issue was a misinterpretation of poverty. There was a spread, misunderstood uh, concept of poverty, which can easily be uh, uh, translated as pauperism. Pauperism is the exaggeration of poverty. Pauper from Latin, poor, pauperism, a kind of ideology of poverty. Poverty turned upside down, understood uh, as the end rather than the means to achieve an end. Poverty is not the end. Poverty is always the means, is a virtue. The virtue is the way to getting there, to the end. The end is perfection. The end is charity. The end is the love of Christ. Poverty to love Christ. And not to love Christ in order to be poor. To be poor without owning anything, without having anything, in order to love Christ, to belong to him. Pauperism, unfortunately, uh, inverted this uh, order, inverted this priority. And uh, so, poverty no longer as a beatitude. Blessed are those poor in spirit. For they shall see God. Poverty was no longer a beatitude, but rather a program, ideological program of life. This is the case with uh, a very spread movement at the time of St. Francis, which began with Peter Valdo, Valdensians, which eventually became part of the Protestant the very first experience of Protestantism in Europe, much earlier than Luther. This is uh, uh, the movement of the Valdensians. Peter Valdo was the founder. Basically, what he wanted was to emphasize the very importance of poverty, to turn it against the structure of the church, the hierarchy of the church, the foundation of the church, hierarchically speaking. So poverty was also a pretext, basically, to reinterpret revelation as such, in order to say that uh, purgatory, for example, was not that important. It is not written anywhere according to his interpretation. So why to still believe in purgatory? Better to get rid of it. 
And of course, if you get rid of purgatory, you get rid of the indulgences. This is Luther already speaking. <laughs> Nothing is new under the sun. Well, uh, this is one example, but also the sacraments. Why the sacraments are seven? Who says that? Of course, if you cut off the tradition of the church, which is not only the interpretation of the Bible, but also the constitution of the faith of the church, this is a concept very strange, odd, in today's church, tradition as constitutive of the, of the faith. No, this is going back in time. We need to go forward. Let's forget about this strange theological concept. Well, it's not new. Why the sacraments are seven? They can be five. They can be four. They can be one. <laughs> Only baptism in the end is necessary. Why seven? Well, this is <clears throat> in the name of poverty, you see, in the name of having that purity of poverty, that pure understanding of poverty, poverty for the sake of poverty, basically, I can also try to make something to, uh, in, in the sense, trying to re-understand the, the, the theological, doctrinal development of the church. So poverty used as a means to an end. The end was no longer perfection, basically, but the way to question the dogmatic uh, structure of the church. Keep this in mind, because this is what happens today. Same thing. In the name of poverty, let's make another church. Same pauperism. But together with the Valdensians, there were also some other heretics, the Cateris, the so-called Cateris, from Cataros. Cataros in Greek means pure. And this heresy was especially very much present at the time of St. Francis, already St. Dominic. St. Dominic of Gutzman was very much engaged in a battle against the Catholic Albigenses spread in the south of France, north of Italy, that region. And uh, they were preaching a very uh, genuine purity, but that purity was so pure to oppose anything material. Anything made out of matter was diabolic. For example, the body of the person is matter, therefore is diabolical. The sacraments, again, are made by matter and form. Yes, the baptism is made with water, but anything created as matter is bad. Why to keep the sacraments? Let's get rid of these sacraments. You, you see, uh, there was also the emphasis on, uh, on poverty here. Poverty used to keep that genuine message of Christ, of poverty. That concept was used 
against the doctrine. As if poverty is the way to be poor and to impoverish the church. That is the temptation. That is the error, which is not that old. In the name of poverty, let's impoverish the faith of the church, the doctrine of the church. Let's change it to please the world, to please man. But in the name of a good intention, isn't it? The intention apparently seems to be all right. In the name of poverty, wow, people like it because people want a church to be very poor, detached from money, from riches, from uh, anything. And people will listen to us if we show to be poor. Is that correct? Poverty can never become the pretext to impoverish the church. Poverty is a great, a great virtue practiced by Jesus Christ himself, by the apostles, in order to bring people back to God by using still things necessary to live, <clears throat> but uh, poverty as a means. Here we understand the necessity of St. Francis' mission in the society, in the church of that time. Francis had to counter this abuse of poverty by understanding poverty correctly, theologically, within the framework of the faith of the church. The faith comes first, not poverty. The faith, uh, the hope of the church. Charity, poverty is a way to, to believe even more, to hope for eternity, to love Christ above all other things. And in fact, the very first thing St. Francis did, 1208, the word, uh, after a few years, St. Francis was ready with 12 friars, already joining him to go to Rome to see the Pope in order to find uh, God's will in the institution of the church. While the Valdensians were opposing the institution, rejecting the Pope, because of the corruption of Rome, because of the riches of the church, because they are not poor, as Jesus was. They have magnificent palaces all over the city of Rome. And with they threw uh, with the bath water, the, the bath water, the, the, the baby as well. Yes? The baby thrown with the bath water. That is the problem. St. <coughs> Francis wanted first to go to see the Pope because the only guarantee to live according to the gospel and to live a good poverty was to get the approval of the Holy See. The Holy See is holy, despite the men occupying that place. There is the guarantee of Christ on the church. The church will never fail. The gate of hell will never prevail 
against the church. That is the faith. That is dogmatic. And that is the conviction of St. Francis. He went to see the Pope. While these uh, heretical people were manifesting basically against the Pope, uh, trying to, to split the church, the unity, Francis is called to build up the church, to build up this unity with this example of poverty. Poverty in function of unity and of faith. <clears throat> uh, the Pope uh, was not uh, happy with St. Francis. Innocent III, a great canon lawyer, welcomed St. Francis, but he was cold. No, this man is not convincing. There are too many people like him. There are other people saying the same thing, but in fact rejecting the faith. And, uh, well, the Pope was not accusing, of course, St. Francis to be a heretic, but uh, he was a bit doubtful. How can you survive without owning anything? It's not possible. You, you should have. The only model of life known at that time, of religious life, was the monastic life. And the monastic life is established in the West by St. Benedict upon the rule and the fact that the monk, the monus, the one within the monastery, is within the same monastery all his life long, but he doesn't have anything personally, but the monastery is, is something they, can, they, they, they own. The institution owns the monastery to let the monks live. So uh, that was the model known and uh, to ensure that the monks had something to live on and to be able to provide for themselves. But Francis is asking to have nothing. But on the other hand, the gospel says so. That uh, the, the, the birds of heaven are blessed because <laughs> they have nothing. They have uh, no... Uh, insurance, uh, no credit card and anything, but they, still, they are still alive because the Creator will provide for them. Be like those birds of heaven. Well, the Gospel says that, but Francis now is asking to do something like, hmm. and the Pope said, no, I'm sorry, I can't grant you your request. Okay, Francis was going back on his way to Assisi. But in that very night, the Pope Innocent had a dream. As he was sleeping, he saw the Lateran Basilica falling down and a very small man holding it up. And the Lateran Basilica was there because of that very small man holding it. He understood that man is Francis of Assisi. The next day, he called St. Francis again. He blessed him and said, Go, I give you an oral approval for your rule. Uh, try, uh, experience it, spread out, and, uh, and then you come back to have a final approval of your rule. And that was the moment when the Pope himself understood uh, that Francis' mission was to build up 
the mystical body of Christ. To give birth to Jesus Christ into the souls of people uh, with a life identical to Christ's life. The mission of poverty for edifying the church. The mission of poverty in function of the church. And not the church uh, subjugated, so to speak, the church uh, under the, the yoke of poverty. No, the church is first. And this is something to clarify for today's church. We can never mix up the charism with the institution. There are two different animals to be taken uh, as something different. What does come first? The institution or the charism of poverty? The charism of the Franciscans, the charism of the Benedictines, the charism of the Jesuits. What does come first? The church or the charism? You know what the charism is? The rule of St. Francis, the rule of St. Benedict, the rule of St. Ignatius of Loyola, and so on. Of course, it's the church which comes first. The church has a mystery built by Christ upon the foundation of Peter and the twelve apostles. If there is no institution, there can be no charism validly, uh, correctly laid out. St. Francis had to remind the church of that time and the church of today that we need to keep separate these two entities, the institution and the charism. The problem is that today there is an overlap. The institution and the charism, they seem to be the same thing. They seem to be one single element. This causes confusion. This causes, uh, unfortunately, misunderstandings. We need to keep these two entities separate. And to reduce, to uh, see the charism in light of the institution, as approved by the institution. And the person, this is another point, I think, very important to highlight, the person of St. Francis cannot be the same person approving the charism. St. Francis cannot be the Pope, and the Pope cannot be St. Francis. They are two different people. Otherwise, there is confusion. The Pope approves St. Francis. St. Francis leaves his charism within the church as approved by the institution. When the institution is charismatic, becoming an oracle, the mouth of the Holy Spirit speaking all the time, the charism is the new dogma. And all dogmas disappear. You understand what I mean? Maybe I can put it in another way. 
when the institution of the church, the Pope, the hierarchy, the bishops, as hierarchically structured, not by me or by another man, but by Jesus Christ, our Lord, when this institution, for the sake of evangelization, if you want, or better today, we don't speak anymore of evangelization, we speak rather of pastoral care, right? Anything is pastoral, anything is about, it should be about feeding the sheep, but what we, we give to the sheep, it's another problem. But the institution, in order to reach out, uh, should always remain that institution, hierarchically constituted by Christ, in order to be the authority, approving, discerning, the right charism to approve it and to make it available in the church for those who are called by God to live it out in their lives. But if the institution, for the sake of pastoral care, pretends to be charismatic, to turn itself into an ongoing charism, what's the effect? of this revolution. Revolution means revolvere in Latin, turn it upside down. What's the effect of this revolution? That the institution is charismatic and the only dogma available for the faithful is what? the Immaculate Conception or the Transubstantiation of the Holy Eucharist? No? Well, this is still all right, but it's not that important for evangelizing or for taking care of pastorally of the sheep. What is truly important? Well, the only, the only dogma is uh, this kind of charismatic action, the charism itself becomes a dogma. And charism means evolution, change. The charism can be also uh, suppressed by the Pope. It is not necessary, but you can never suppress the hierarchy of the church, even though there is an attempt with the synodality to suppress the hierarchy of the church in the name of the people of God. Well, in this kind of new understanding, in this kind of pauperism, it's good to call things by their name, say pauperism, in this kind of pauperism, ongoing pauperism, the very dogma of the church becomes the changing will of the moment, the changing inspiration of the moment. Anything is inspiration. Anything may be something right. Anything may be something viable, such as blessing homosexual couples with this very strange document, blasphemous document, which has come out a few days ago. 
we should be bold here. We cannot anymore keep our head in the sand under the parapet. Those who don't speak out now are accomplice with this problem. We cannot do something against God's creation. Even though it's the Pope saying that, he has no power to change God's revelation. And St. Francis is reminding the Pope to be the Pope and not to be the charism, changing mentality in the church, changing the doctrine. We should be bold. And we hope that more bishops, especially bishops from this side of the world, from this decadent society, Western society, may speak out, as the African bishops are saying. Because thanks be to God, their culture, their society is not as decadent. It's not decadent as this Western society, full of any good, of anything, but empty of what is truly good, with no God, with no faith, and with no natural uh, principles. So we should be bold and say that this kind of pauperism is impoverishing the church. And we cannot allow this. St. Francis won't allow it to impoverish the church in the name of mercy, in the name of poverty, in the name of charism. You see the parallel. You see the, uh, the moments. St. Francis' society and church is not that different from this moment, which means that we, are, we, we need not to despair, of course, and to say, oh, something tragic going on. The church has lost its identity, and uh, it's the end, the end of the world. Now the last judgment is there. No. The church has always gone through all these hardships and difficulties. Today there is something very unique, of course. We don't have the time to go into more details, but uh, it is quite a unique moment in the church. But uh, uh, my effort is to just show you that St. Francis' time is not that much different from this time. And therefore, the way forward is the same. The same mission entrusted by our Lord to our seraphic father St. Francis and to those who wish to follow him in his footsteps with the right concept of poverty. Which I hope, as you understand now, this poverty is not simply the virtue of poverty, but poverty is, is a program of life. For St. Francis, poverty is a program of life. To have nothing in order to own what is really necessary. Only God. This is poverty. To have nothing but God. Today we have everything but God. Yes? This is pauperism. This is the decadence of this society. And this is the reason why we are not able to speak out. Because we say, okay, it's, if, it's fine, it's part of our 
culture, what to do, try to be more merciful, try to understand, try to bless these unions. No, you cannot bless what is against God's creation, God's revelation. We are not rejecting the people, never. The church has rejected anyone. But we cannot bless the union. The union is sinful, is against God's creation. And the way this kind of blessing is envisaged is neither theological nor pastoral. Because if the blessing as they wish now is simply a prayer, spontaneous prayer, and it's no longer a sacramental, what is it? If the blessing is not a sacramental, what is it? Yes? It's my word. It's my uh, magic <laughs> way to call upon you the blessing of who? Which God? This is the problem. Where it, what's the authority justifying this kind of theological blessing? No quote of scripture, no quote of church fathers, no quote of magisterium of the church, other than one single authority, indisputable authority. Who is this authority? Pope Francis. Only one. With my due respect to the Pope, but he cannot be the only authority to justify such a significant change. Cannot uh, justify such a change because the magisterium in any case is under the word of God not above deciding what to believe and what not to believe okay this is just to stir you up stir your conscience up and see that we are living in a very dramatic moment but uh, it's also a very grace filled moment because where sin abounds, there is grace, even more abundant, right? We have to trust our blessed Lord, who is in charge of the church, in any case. But our Lord is telling us to be more, to be wiser, and to understand <clears throat> that there is a way forward. And the way forward will be, I hope, explained in the next meditation. Now, just, this is just to kind of a status questionis, to see the question, what, what's at the stake, and the importance of St. Francis. Okay? We now conclude with something which is not that encouraging, but I think it is good to know because in this moment of decadence of our culture and this moment when our churches are closing down, we need to do something, don't we? We need to act. In our Catholic religion, the uh, 90% of Catholics do not practice. 90%. In the UK, in, but in England and Wales, around 48.5% of 
of the population identifies as irreligious or nones, no religion. In Scotland, unfortunately, the, the percentage is even higher. 58% of the population is nones. The churches convert very few people raised with either no religion or in a non-Christian religion. To every one Catholic convert correspond normally 10 cradle Catholics who no longer regard themselves to be Catholic. In few years, if we continue this way, we have all our churches empty. We need to sell them. And who will be buying these churches? In England and Wales and Scotland and Italy? The Muslims are already there to buy all our properties and to turn them into mosques. Will Christianity be wiped out from these countries? Well, we don't know. Bishop Philip also raised the same question. Is Christianity to be wiped out of these countries? It could, if we are negligent. If it does, we have to take the responsibility before God. What have we done? It's the time to to assess the problem, to see the problem in the eyes without turning to the other side, say everything is fine, everything is good, God is merciful, yes. But uh, we need to take our responsibility and this is an urgent uh, appeal, basically. Go, Francis, and repair my house, which is falling apart. I don't think they had at that time the same problem of the 90% of Catholics not practicing. I don't think so, no. It was a great affluence uh, to the churches. There were other problems, of course, but uh, secularization wasn't the issue. Okay. The problem is there. The Francis message is clear. How could we understand it and leave it out? Well, you have to wait for the next <laughs> talk. Otherwise, it is too much now. <laughs>